are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. I keep forgetting to do that. Sorry, guys. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. This is episode number 307. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder and producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Please support our show by subscribing and leaving us a review. Today we're talking about rainbow washing in the industry, banning nicotine and what that means for the industry, Congress fixing the hemp industry's challenges, updates on Colombian cultivation, SCOTUS saying no to workers' comp cases, 23 state attorneys asking Congress to address copycats, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? All right, so mine's uh, from Benzinga by uh, Nicholas Jose Rodriguez. Leisure Town. Diplo and Rob Deerdeck's new cannabis seltzers launch in California via agreement with Herbal. What do you get when you take a legendary skateboarding entrepreneur turned entertainer, team them up with a multiple Grammy Award winning artist, DJ and producer, add some THC, CBD, water, and a stack of cash? Leisure Town. Or Rob Deerdeck and Diplo joining on the bandwagon to launch yet another uninspired celebrity-backed microdose beverage brand. The duo partnered with California supply chain giant Herbal to launch their new THC-infused Leisure Town beverages with 2.5 milligrams of THC and 5 milligrams of CBD. The drinks will come in three flavors, cherry, vanilla, ginger berry, and yuzu lime. I guess in the grand scheme of things, you can make some sense of it, um, because per the article, a report issued by ReportLinker.com, an AI-based award-winning market research solution, projected the global cannabis beverage market to grow from its final 2020 revenues of just a shade under $800 million to $2 billion by 2026, growing at a compound uh, annual growth rate of 16.9%. 
Deardex quoted in the article saying, the seltzers are a tasty drink that doesn't wreck my day, offering microdoses of THC that allow consumers to let loose while staying in control of their cannabis experiences. Leisure Town founder and president Doug Walker also describes the product as combining the crisp, bubbly, and delicious nature of seltzers with the calming effects of cannabis, creating a sessional beverage that lets you function your very best. New marketing buzzword, y'all. Sessional. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, um, but when Rob Deerdeck and Diplo come to mind, I don't really envision leisurely boardwalk strolls with a pastel-colored can of CBD sugar water in my hand. I'm thinking ridiculousnesses, crazy stunts, jokes and pranks, and uh, EDM or rave culture. Maybe an energy drink would be more on brand for this type of uh, uh, for the type of entertainment that these guys are known for or even just invest from behind the scenes and let leisure town leisurely grow organically as a standalone and ride the low dose wave from the background i'm really trying uh, to find some positives in this one because i do like both of these guys work in their their respective fields but remaining objective in my analysis here i can't see it working out Uh, they're going to be rightfully labeled as bandwagoner chads looking to make a quick buck off the young and influential coachella edc crowds and though uh they make They may make it through the rest of this year's festival season. I can't imagine the two of them doing the groundwork necessary for it to succeed long term with them as the faces of the brand. So like everyone else, I do wish them the best of luck as they enter the field. But I think the last thing that the California market is currently looking to rally around is a couple of white male celebrity outsiders uh, on the hunt for young suckers to buy their overpriced Me Too um, THC spiked seltzer water. I'll reserve full judgment until I actually sample this shit, but at first glance, uh, Leisure Town doesn't really spark excitement synonymous with Deerdeck or Diplo's personal brands. Maybe some folks on the team or the audience today can convince me otherwise, but yeah, I don't see this thing really popping off much uh, as much more than a bro's answer to can, minus any originality or brand identity cues that might have at least made them attractive as something different than current market offerings. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on the street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Please help me out with this one, y'all. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm still waiting for a cannabis beverage that I love. I haven't found one. Yeah, it sounds really sweet. It sounds like White Claw. <laughs> uh, I hear you. I mean, you. White Claw popping. They got big sales. Sure. Uh, I certainly hear you, Rico, and it's and not like we necessarily need another celebrity-driven brand in the space. But if you are a celebrity with no attachment to cannabis, trying to enter the industry, entering in the fastest-growing segment of the edibles market, which is still a very, very small slice of the pie, might make sense because your celebrity could drive some sales and that will seem like proportionally a lot. So if they wanted to enter the cannabis industry, certainly understand why they're choosing to do it through a seltzer beverage vehicle, but I'm still skeptical till I try it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I agree with you there, but it just doesn't jive with either of their brands. I was going to say, like at all. I was going to say, Rico. I think they just should have hired you as a brand consultant because they should have owned their bat. You know, like an energy drink that would have been yeah. way more on brand. So. Uh, yeah, for them to do like the pastelli, you know, white claw replacement is just—it's absurd. They should have They should have, you know, gone all in on their on sort of their brand with like an energy drink or some kind of a- aspect like that. Agreed. I, I'm, I'm to- I, I agree with all of you guys on this. One. This is totally, totally, totally off brand for them. <laughs> what they should have done, would have, which would have been a much better thing that would have been on bar brand for both of them, is to do uh, medicated uh, water. 
because when you're at the fucking raves listening to Diplo fucking mollied out, you fucking definitely need some water. And when you're at the skate park on a hot, sunny day, you definitely need some water, too. Yeah, what happened to CBD water? Like, those, all those CBD waters just a fucking beer, didn't they? <laughs> There's a bunch of them. We need to keep smoking the news. Let's keep it on. Let's keep it going. The private jet hop is the longest continuously operating retailer in the industry with an affinity for the best weed in the world and identification and eradication of Booth worldwide. He is the photo negative to my blackness. The whiteness of Jason Beck is about to bless us all. <laughs> Jason Beck, what do you have for us today, Mr. Kool-Aid? You are so, so silly sometimes. So, so silly. But I'll tell you right now, my article is not on topic of cannabis today. It's on prohibitionists. And that prohibitionist is coming in the form of Joe Biden. And I personally believe that at this point in time, he has lost every single Gen Z voter that is going to vote for him because they are just going to all take a nap during the election time because of this article. Because the Biden administration targets removal of most nicotine from cigarettes. And there's also a vape ban in conjunction with this, too. And that's why I'm saying this about the Gen Zers. The Biden administration is moving forward on a plan to mandate and eliminate Nearly all nicotine in cigarettes, a policy that would upend $95 billion U.S. cigarette industry and health officials say it prompt millions of people to quit smoking. The plan unveiled Tuesday as part of the administration's agenda of regulatory actions likely wouldn't take effect for several years. The Food and Drug Administration plans to publish a proposed rule in May of 2023, though the agency cautioned that date could change. Then the agency would invite public comments before publishing the final rule. Tobacco companies could then sue, which could further delay the, pub, uh, the policy's implementation. Nicotine is powerfully addictive, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said in a statement on Tuesday. Lowering nicotine levels to minimally addictive or non-addictive levels would decrease the likelihood that future generations of young people become addicted to cigarettes and can, can move more currently in an addicted smoker, getting addicted smokers to quit. The move would be the biggest step by the U.S. government to curb smoking since the landmark legal, legal settlement in 1998 when tobacco companies agreed to pay more than $200 billion with a B to help states pay for health care. As part of that settlement, the company has also agreed to various marketing restrictions, including a ban on free product samples and advertising on billboards. Now, a quick note that I think everyone should understand about this case is the fact that uh, tobacco is a, considered an agricultural commodity in the United States of America and therefore subject to the same types of tax benefits that's, that, that would be afforded to other agricultural commodities. Now, in turn with that, this $200 billion that Americans think that tobacco companies paid, guess what? You didn't. You, the taxpayer, paid for it because it's an agricultural commodity insured by the U.S. federal government. So, therefore, the U.S. cigarette smoking rate has been declining in the U.S. for decades, though it rose slightly in 2020 when the pandemic hit. About 12.5% of adults in the U.S., or 30.8 million people, were cigarette smokers in 2020, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. U.S. cigarette sales are expected to drop this year to about $95 billion from $99 billion last year, according to the Euro Monitor International, the policy um, the, the, the policy would apply to all cigarettes sold in the U.S. Imports of traditional cigarettes would be barred, but, multi, by multi, but multinational tobacco companies could continue to sell full nicotine cigarettes in other countries. New Zealand's Ministry of Health 
also has proposed a reduction of nicotine in cigarettes to very low levels as part of a broader plan to curb smoking. The FDA's plan could, could rule sharply to grease the U.S. cigarette sales and tobacco companies intend to fight it. The largest U.S. cigarette makers, Altria Group and Reynolds America, sell alternative products such as nicotine pouches, but revenue for both companies comes predominantly from cigarettes. Reynolds and Altria said Tuesday that encouraged, that encouraged smokers to switch to less harmful options was a better approach to improving public health than reducing nicotine in cigarettes. We do actually support the over overreaching goal here, which is to tr transition smokers from cigarette to smoke-free products, said Murray Garnick, Altria's general counsel. We just think that the better way is to create a robust market of FDA-authorized smoke-free products. And that's funny that he says that because there is only one tobacco vaping de device that is approved by the FDA currently, and that is the ICOS. Mr. Garnick said that the policy might not be effective in helping people quit, that it could fuel a surge in demand for black market cigarettes, and that reducing nicotine to very low levels wasn't achievable on the scale of billions of cigarettes a year. If the policy were effective, he said, it could hurt U.S. tobacco growers and retailers. Nicotine is the, is the addictive... Uh, Nicotine is the addictive chemical that hooks people on cigarettes. Nicotine itself doesn't cause cancer or lung disease, according to the FDA. Those diseases are caused by other harmful constituents in cigarette smoke. The FDA's nicotine reduction plan is based on more than a decade of government-funded research showing that when people use cigarettes with about 95% less nicotine than a typical cigarette, they smoke fewer cigarettes and become less dependent on them. Well, duh. Smokers of these cigarettes were more likely to quit or seek their nicotine fix from less harmful alternatives such as an e-cigarette or gum compared with smokers who continued using regular cigarettes. Cigarette smoking is the most dangerous way to consume nicotine according to public health officials. While very low nicotine uh, cigarettes are less addictive, researchers say their smoke still contains most of the same carcinic compounds as regular cigarette smoke. So you're not going to do anything for other people's health with secondhand smoking or anything like that by reducing the nicotine. According to an FDA study published in 2018, such a rule would prompt an additional 13 million adult smokers to quit within five years of implementation. And smoking is linked to more than 480,000 deaths in the U.S. each year, according to the CDC. And tobacco use costs nearly $300 billion a year in direct health care and lost productivity, the FDA says. Cigarette industry executives say the science on low nicotine cigarettes isn't conclusive. They say that such a rule would expand the illicit market for cigarettes and could lead to consumer confusion around the health risks of very low nicotine cigarettes. There is widespread misunderstanding in the U.S. about the health risks of nicotine, and an FDA study in 2017 found that about 75% of people either were unsure of the relationship between nicotine and cancer or incorrectly believed that nicotine caused cancer. Big cigarette companies also say it would take years for them to develop a very low nicotine cigarette and that it wouldn't be feasible to manufacture at scale. In the past, tobacco companies have made low nicotine cigarettes by stripping nicotine from tobacco leaf in a process similar to the way coffee companies make decaffeinated coffee. In anticipation of federal nicotine reduction rule, Altria and Reynolds have experimented with other ways, including tobacco leaf treatments and plant breeding development of different tobacco varietals or strains that contain less nicotine, uh, industry executives say. And Scott Gottlieb, who served as FDA commissioner during the Trump administration, 
pursued a reduction of nicotine in cigarettes as part of a broader tobacco policy he proposed back in 2017. But after he left the agency in 2019, Trump administration officials shelved that plan. The Biden administration decided to embrace this policy as part of President Biden's cancer moonshot initiative, which aims to reduce the cancer death rate by at least 50 percent over the next 25 years. His administration is also pursuing a ban on menthol cigarettes, which account for more than a third of all cigarettes sold in the U.S. The FDA published a proposed rule on menthols in April and is now soliciting public comments. That ban also wouldn't take effect for several years. And separately, here's the kicker. The FDA is conducting a review of all. That's right. All of them. Every last one of them on the market weighing whether their potential benefit as a less harmful alternative for adult cigarette smokers outweighs the product's risk to young people. Well, I'll tell you what, that prohibition never helped anything, and that's all that I see this is. And if we didn't learn anything from New York with the tragic tragic death in New York from the gentleman that was selling, uh, sell, selling cigarettes in New York and was killed by police, uh, we're never going to learn from this. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know we have to keep on moving because we have a lot of stories today, but I just wanted to comment real quick. It is happening, y'all. This is the reason Big Tobacco has been quietly chilling in the back of the room for years. Today, Altria is up half a point while the rest of the Dow Jones is down 131. Big Tobacco's in the building. And let's keep smoking the news. We're way over time. Well, coming up next, she's a political strategist by day and baker by night. A true female multitasker who can not only bake up a storm, but also knows how to make the sausage on Capitol Hill. She's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider. Taking off the apron, it's none other than Gretchen Gailey. Uh, Good afternoon. I have a very disappointing headline coming out of Washington. Uh, From Marijuana Moment, marijuana banking reform will not be enacted. As part of manufacturing bill, congressional leaders agree. Marijuana banking reform will not be included in a large-scale manufacturing bill that's being negotiated in bicameral conference committee. Congressional leaders from both parties have agreed. In the interest of getting the larger legislation passed more expediently, before the August recess, Senator, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy met this week to scale the bill down. That included ceding to a Republican demand to keep the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act out of the legislation. Punchbowl News first reported this uh, today. It was never a guarantee that the cannabis banking bill would make it into the American Competes conference report, despite the House including it in its version before heading to conference. Schumer, for his part, has repeatedly suggested he is uncomfortable moving the narrow financial reform ahead of broader justice-focused cannabis legalization and his office had tempered expectations about the possibility of SAFE being enacted through the manufacturing bill early in the bicameral talks. Uh, lead SAFE Banking Act sponsor, Representative Ed Perlmutter, reacted strongly to the news that the bicameral leaders had agreed to keep his legislation from advancing yet again. Perlmutter said, The Senate continues to ignore the public safety risk of forcing cannabis businesses to deal in all cash. In the wake of the Senate's inaction, people continue to be killed, businesses continue to be robbed, and employees and business owners in the cannabis industry continue to be excluded from the financial system. The news that an agreement has been made at the highest levels of congressional leadership is a source of serious frustration for supportive lawmakers, stakeholders, and advocates. Now Perlmutter will in all likelihood need to pursue a different vehicle for the reform, which has passed the House in some form six, six times at this point, although he said he will keep pushing to include it in the current legislation despite leaders' decision. 
He said, I will continue to push for safe banking to be included in competes, other legislative vehicles, or for the Senate to finally take up the standalone version of the bill, which has been sitting in the Senate for three and a half years. One possibility would be to include the legislation in a package of incremental reforms that is apparently being discussed as an alternative to a comprehensive legalization bill that Schumer and colleagues are finalizing. It could also potentially get a ride in the latest version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The House included cannabis banking provision in its version of that bill last year, but could not reach an agreement with the Senate to enact it as part of the final package. The House Armed Services Committee marked up the 2023 version of the NDAA on Wednesday, and it's possible that safe banking could be added as a floor amendment once more. But in any case, the lack of safe banking in America competes is a setback especially considering the number of lawmakers from both chambers who insisted that this issue is a priority and vowed to push for its inclusion. Uh, I would say I love how Marijuana Moment has put this at the feet of Republicans. I guarantee you Chuck Schumer did nothing to help this along. Um, And if Chuck wanted to fight for it, he could have. We will see what happens with safe banking. I do think that Pearl Mutter is going to go down fighting. I don't think he's going to let this thing die. He will add it as amendments to other pieces of legislation coming up. Um, Or if Chuck Schumer wanted to actually do something for this industry, he could push forward the standalone bill that has been sitting in the Senate forever. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Act. Pass safe banking. So uh, curious, what do you think about um, AOC and Joyce kind of teaming up on the the Hope Initiative and then Joyce maybe bringing SAFE uh, into, you know, some kind of combination with the Hope? I think that's definitely a possibility. I think that's the only possibility, frankly, for any type of uh, coming together, addressing um, some of the issues on the social equity side as well as banking. I think that is a a strong possibility because Schumer's bill is not happening. Hasn't right. even been introduced. It's fucking end of June. Right. Not- this is, that's what I was thinking. Hey, safe banking ain't going to happen either. So, you know, I love your point, Laura, that, that what AOC is working on with that a Republican congressman, I think it's called the Hope Act, that should give us hope. Because other way, it, it ain't happening. I think we well, the only the way, it ain't happening. The only way, Eric, that hope is, acting, is happening is if it's being attached to safe. Because Hope does not have the sponsors uh, or the endorsements that the Safe Banking Act. And as you has. And so and as you mentioned, remember, let's through. remember it's Republican senators that are hope holding this up. There's still only nine no, of them. It's not. There's only it's nine. Not. Where are the rest of them? Not the leader of the Senate. That is totally ridiculous. Yeah, but you can't you can't do anything with nine Republican senators. Where are the rest of them? The majority leader is Senator Chuck Schumer, who is a Democrat. Yeah, but if you're going to pass something with 60. to bring anything to the floor except for his bill. But if you're going to pass, if you're going to pass something with 60 votes, you need Republicans. And there aren't. And there there are Republicans. It doesn't doesn't need 60 votes. You want me to name 10 Republicans who are going to get on board safe? I can't. Where's 20? Where's 30? Don't say that they support cannabis. There's hardly any. I'm not saying they're supporting cannabis. I say they support safe banking. Yeah, but they won't support what we're talking about, which is 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 these issues like expungement. They won't even touch it. They don't want to talk about it. And until they do, it ain't going to happen. It definitely is going to happen, Eric. And stop being such a naysayer. That's not positive uh, enforcement for the industry to be able to I'm Safe very banking pos- is the only realistic legislative thing that is, could possibly be done for our industry. No, and our industry desperately needs There's other options. There are Nothing other options else to get your has bank. a realistic pass of passing or going anywhere. Or well, even the other signed one don't by either, your bro. Democratic president. Well, what, <laughs> that, that's not the issue right now. The issue is what can happen in Congress. 
It may not be the issue now, but it may be the issue later on. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. This patient, plant medicine advocate in Roz McCarthy's right hand on the left coast for M4MMs, also the founder of Purple Plant Magic, helping to curate advocates and educate the masses and inspire beautiful shades of purple hair that I hope she's still rocking. Nicole Buffong, what you got for us? Rep in Las Vegas. Uh, coming out of Nigeria, it's an opinion piece by Abati Ungo Umbo. I hope I said his name right. Um, breaking news happening now in Nigeria in today's latest newspaper headline. Leveraging on cannabis for export. This is an opinion piece. So there are parts of this piece that are concerning to read. I will share some of those points and you let me know what you think. Undoubtedly, it has been a long, drawn-out war against cannabis since its prohibition. Regardless of the strict laws, global cannabis trade has remarkably continued to thrive, fueled essentially by both active supply and demand. A strong stigmatization campaign incentivized its prohibition in America, which birthed the Marijuana Act in the 1930s. Before then, it was unregulated and widely used for recreational medical purposes with mixed stories of efficacy. However, Nigeria supported its war with laws like the Dangerous Drug Act of um, the 1935 Indian and Hemp Act of 1966, which bans the planting, harvesting, and consumption of cannabis before the Nigeria Drug Law Enforcement Act of 1989. This is in addition to signing the agreement at the Convention of Narcotic Drugs in 1961 and UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances of 1988. The delisting of cannabis from the group of dangerous drugs, which included heroin and synthetic opiates by the Commission on Narcotics Drugs, had the narrative on cannabis changed considerably, followed by many countries racing towards instituting laws in accommodating the green gold, um, that's what it calls it, green gold, and Africa is not let out of this, left out of this rush. Lesotho is the first African country to do so for medical and, and scientific purposes, with the re- requisite licensing coming at a steep cost. The, legis- the legalization of the psychotropic substance has m- made a transition from the question of morality to commerce business. Though the staggering statistics of victims of the use of cannabis, as well as the impact on society, not- notably the youth, and its place as a part of crimes and conduit into the addiction to other hard drugs, makes the war a serious undertaking, and that forms the argument against legalization, which can hardly be faulted. The base of junkies is bound to ramp up. However, he goes on to say, however, the revelation on cannabis and the global hurry to get a slice of the opportunity it presents is huge, enough to recalibrate our thinking and impression. Prohibition Partners, a research consulting firm, in a 2019 report estimated that Africa's cannabis business could earn as much as $7.1 billion annually by 2023. Um, the approach, at, which means Africa can buy themselves back from China um, by, by implementing uh, cannabis as, a, as an export. The approach in leveraging the opportunity should be tailored toward medical purposes, which will encourage the establishing of industries in the processing and exports of cannabis-based products or raw material. So the country has no shortage of entrepreneurs inclined in taking the plunge. Huge revenue would be racked up from the issuance of licenses and taxes from the industry. He concludes by saying, as earlier mentioned, many African countries have jumped on the bandwagon, while Nigeria remains noncommittal despite the loud call for change of attitude towards cannabis. It is still a budding industry which may have informed the indifference by authorities. At any rate, lively debates need to be sustained for rich knowledge on the subject in actuating a rethink. 
With abundant land, experienced farmers, and decent growing conditions, Nigeria can be on its way to becoming a major player with rich economic benefits. This is Nicole Buffon reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. That's kind of crazy, uh, Nicole, because uh, Nigeria has such a strong cannabis culture. It's kind of like a, a head spinner. What is, the, what is the price tag that China has put on uh, Nigeria? You mean the entire continent? Cor- uh, the, the, entire, the, the, not the entire price. country. Because you said you said yeah, you said well, it could pull it out of being own, in under ownership by China, and so I'm wondering what what is that number? Um, I don't know what that number is, but I will have that number for you. It's not just Nigeria um, that has that is in debt to China. It's in several African countries. Um, but I know that I've I've read that what Africa could do by producing or adding cannabis to its GDP can help to pay back that debt. And it's not just yeah, China; I've, it's France. It's, it's, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I think China, countries, like, currently... European countries that own parts of Africa. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, China uh, currently, I think they own, like, a 33% of uh, af- the African supply chain right now through the uh, the Great Belt. Yeah, Belt, Great Belt Road Initiative. Yeah, they, con- and this is Dr. Felicia, they, yeah, they control a lot of the precious mineral mines in Africa. They've built things and um, made shark loan type uh, deals so that the, the people, the African people can't even possibly repay these things. And they're, you know, the result of them not paying it is that they get to, China gets to own these, this infrastructure. So my only concern, my, well, one of my concerns is that if Nigeria goes through and, and makes cannabis uh, a crop that can bring money into the country, then I, I hope that the money can get to the people and not to just corrupt leaders um, which oftentimes is, is happening. They hold on to the money and the people continue to suffer. This is Dr. Felicia. I'm done speaking. I agree with you, Dr. Felicia. It's like China China swooped down uh, with a bunch of payday loan shops when uh, Donald Trump decided to leave all of uh, Barack Obama's investments in shithole countries. <laughs> with that, I'm, we're at the halfway point. I'm going to relight the room. You were tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or campaign advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Coming next to the stage, it's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common-sense cannabis policy. A real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of the cannabis chaos. Coming up next, it's none other than Menika Mahajan. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Jason, for the introduction. Today, I'm talking about enforcement efforts at American borders. On Monday, Rico Lamite reported about the DEA's domestic enforcement activities, which increased from 2020 to 2021. Meanwhile, drug interdiction efforts along the U.S. border have been less exciting for the DEA. According to data previously provided by the Drug Enforcement Administration, federal agents are no longer frequently making large seizures of cannabis along the southern border because, quote, in U.S. markets, Mexican marijuana has largely been supplanted by domestic produced marijuana, end quote. The Border Patrol, on the other hand, continues to utilize enforcement resources to seize small amounts of cannabis, predominantly from U.S. citizens. Border Patrol operates immigration checkpoints where agents screen vehicles to identify people of foreign nationality 
who are potentially removable, and they may enforce U.S. criminal laws, such as seizing illegal drugs and interdicting human smugglers. U.S. Border Patrol's immigration checkpoints operate 25 to 100 miles inland from the borders. Since Border Patrol is part of the Department of Homeland Security and not an agency within the Department of Justice like the DEA, <clears throat> excuse me, it is not influenced by Attorney General Merrick Garland's repeated statements that enforcement resources should not be used against those who are in compliance with state cannabis laws. This means that Border Patrol agents are free to enforce federal cannabis prohibition far from the border and in many cases within states that have made cannabis legal for adults. However, a pair of recently issued reports show that drug interdiction efforts along the U.S. border often involve the seizure of small quantities of cannabis and no other substances. This goes against the narrative that illegal drugs are flowing into the country via the southern border and enforcement efforts are essential in order to curb large-scale drug trafficking of potent illegal substances. As Catherine Neal Harris, a fellow in drug policy at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, noted in a different article that focuses on fentanyl, which is a true public health threat and distinct from cannabis, quote, I think most people would agree that there are more drugs seized that not seized than seized, she said. And if you look at seizures in the context of the overdose epidemic, then they have been a pretty ineffective intervention as seizures and overdoses have risen together. Keep that in mind, that seizures and overdoses have risen together and that securing the, the borders from substances like fentanyl is part of the justification for these levels of funding. Back to the two reports. The first report, published by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, analyzed Border Patrol data of 17,960 separate checkpoint seizure events from 2016 to 2020. Authors reported that, quote, most drug seizure events involved only U.S. citizens, 91%, of which 75% involved the seizure of marijuana and no other drugs, end quote. Of those seizures, 69% involved only personal use quantities of cannabis. The Dallas Morning News published a separate analysis in which it reviewed arrest data compiled as part of Operation Lone Star, a Texas-sponsored border security program. Authors reported that roughly one of every five arrests attributed to the nearly $4 billion program involved minor quantities of cannabis. Specifically, the reporters determined that in the Rio Grande Valley, a collection of South Texas counties that make up the state's busiest immigration corridor, low-level marijuana possession is the most common arrest under Operation Lone Star. The same is true in El Paso County and Webb County. End quote. Normal's political director, Morgan Fox, sums it up well, sums up the problem well. Quote, it is increasingly clear that the disconnect in cannabis policies extends beyond just the conflict between state and federal laws, but also leads to differences in how individual federal agencies behave. The simplest solution to address these conflicts is to remove cannabis from the schedule of federal, federally controlled substances, but in the interim, the various arms of the federal government need to get on the same page and stop wasting valuable resources going after minor possession cases, especially in states where cannabis is legal for medical or adult use. End quote. So what's troubling about the findings of this research is that while the American political system is struggling to deal with actual problems that are causing harm to people and planet, our federal budget, funded by taxpayers, continues to be used against, guess who? Us. And this research shows that American citizens are being searched and harassed over minor infractions, most involving small quantities of cannabis, despite, despite widespread support for legalization in this country and years of data showing the, the failure of drug enforcement efforts over decades. That's what I've got for you today. I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know. I just I, I feel like I watch a lot of these border shows where they have big busts, and so 
I just I, I see a lot more bust than what I am seeing in this article. Marketing works. Are are you saying that the busts are staged, Rico, at the border? I'm saying trust none of what you hear and half of what you see, especially if it's on TV. Let's keep it rocking. This fifth-generation Californio is an award-winning journalist, brand-building content ninja, and freedom-fighting farmer's friend. He's never afraid to clap back at provocative, short-sighted conservative comments with hard-hitting truths that they do not want to hear. Eric Hislerator, what you got for us today, my man? Thank you for the intro, Rico. Um, hey, everybody, great to be here today. My headline is from Cannabis Now, and it's a Colombian cannabis cultivators face continued crackdown with subhead, Colombia is at a crossroads with a historic election of the left populist Gustavo Petro as president. But will he be able to close the country's cannabis gap? Big bite is booming while small peasant producers face continued eradication. So this is a sort of a follow-up piece uh, from what I covered last week about the presidential elections in Colombia, South America's third largest country and oldest democracy. Um, I can say I called the winner on this one, which I think is a win for the country and cannabis. Jumping straight in, the outcome of the June 19 presidential runoff race in Colombia was going to be unprecedented either way, as it pitted two political outsiders who ran anti-establishment campaigns against each other. But the victor, progressive senator and ex-guerrilla leader Gustavo Petro, made it doubly unprecedented, as he's now set to become the country's first president of the left. Petro won a narrow victory over rival right-wing populist Rodolfo Hernandez, a pugnacious constriction uh, magnate in the mold of Donald Trump. The pair represented diametrically opposed brands of populism. Petro's campaign emphasized multiculturalism and ecology, as well as more traditional leftist demands for social and economic justice. His running mate, uh, Francia Marquez, an Afro-Colombian environmental campaigner, will become the country's first black vice president after the August 7 inauguration. And that's huge if you know the culture of Colombia. Um, this story, what we're writing today, is a new story for Colombia, for Latin America, for the world, Petro said in his victory speech at a Bogota arena. We're not going to betray this electorate. But despite progress in recent years, a peace process to wind down the internal war, emergence of a legal cannabis sector, Colombia's drug war dystopia remains deeply entrenched. Petro will face a challenge in lifting the pressure on small uh, peasant cannabis producers who have largely been left behind as big greenhouse operations dominate the legal industry. The good news is that there's now a consensus on legalized commercial cannabis cultivation nearly across Colombia's political spectrum. Medical cannabis was legalized in December 2015 by decree of then-President Juan Manuel Santos, who would the following year win the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating peace with the FARC guerrillas. Um, along the peace deal, 2016 also saw Colombia's Congress approve commercial cultivation. Hernandez took an extreme hardline position, pledging zero impunity to approach to crime. He said he would declare a state of emergency upon taking office and order the security forces to retake areas where armed actors exercise political and territorial control. Petro, in contest, said he'll reform the security forces and purge their leadership at the highest levels. He calls the war on drugs a failure and pledges to refocus enforcement efforts from peasant producers and low-level couriers to the financial and business sectors that facilitate trafficking and launder the proceeds. And this points to likely differences in their approach to cannabis. Unlike Hernandez, Petro didn't emphasize expanding the cannabis sector as a platform plank. However, when asked about about it in an interview with Bogota's News Weekly Semana in March, he, he responded frankly, it seems stupid to me to keep cannabis underground so that the sons of former presidents are entering the business of legal cannabis exportation while they drop bombs on the campesinos and their sons 
who produce cannabis in Cauca. And, and Cauca is a uh, cannabis-producing region outside of Cali. Uh, campesino cultivation in Cauca remains almost entirely unlicensed, which means the producers have no choice but to sell to criminal networks, which overlap with the armed factions. This, of course, makes them targets for counterinsurgency, as well as ongoing eradication efforts. Uh, Monica Diaz, a campesino or peasant leader in the area, emphasized that local communities have essentially been abandoned by the government, except when, except when it sends in soldiers to eradicate crops. The army doesn't agree with us cultivating these plants, but it's the only way because the government doesn't collaborate with us, she said. It's our only form of sustenance. Uh, for the sake of time, I have to skip a lot here, but if you want to learn a lot about what's happening in this pivotal country in legacy and modern-day cannabis, I really recommend this read. And that's what I've got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. I would love to go on a tour in Colombia. You want to arrange a tour, Eric? I would Eric? so much love to do that. And I've done it with other people. I mean, I've been on group trips with other journalists, and I've actually taken folks down. So you guys tell me when, and uh, we'll make it happen. We'll go to some farms, go to some research institutes, party in Cali, and dance some salsa. It's all, it can all happen. 100%. Oh, yeah. in. Watch out, Susan. You might get kidnapped by the fart. I just want to go. I just want to go rollerblading on the uh, on the freeway, like I. Saw yeah, my my lady did that as a kid. She used she's a, like an ace rollerblader, and she used to do that as a kid. They were that's how they trained. There's no other world. There's no other place to train, and and inline skating is a big sport in Colombia. I will bust my shit. Just keep it moving. Coming up next, she's an attorney at law by day, focused on bridging the gap between cannabis entertainment and psychedelics. But by night, she's G.I. Jane. Coming next to this stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Toke? It's none other than Shalina Panu. Thank you so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Kentucky's Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee meets for first time to discuss future town hall meetings. As reported by Mountain News WYMT from Eastern Kentucky, the Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee met for the first time this past Monday, June 20th, 2022. The main focus of this first meeting was to introduce the members and to discuss how the committee would conduct their operations. Last week, Kentucky.gov posted a press release regarding an executive order by Kentucky's Governor Andy Beshear for creating a Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee. The press release states, through an executive order, the governor named 17 initial members who have relevant experience in healthcare, treatment of lipid use disorder, and other diseases of addiction, law enforcement, criminal justice, and advocacy for medical cannabis. The committee will soon travel the state and listen to Kentuckians' views on medical cannabis and provide that feedback to the governor. The committee's purpose of having future town hall meetings is to gain feedback from the public across, across the state regarding access to medical cannabis for patients. The committee will then provide this feedback and their expertise to the governor's administration. The committee will host their future town hall meetings across Kentucky, and they will be separated into four regions, East, West, North, and Central Kentucky. As of this past Friday, Kentucky's medical cannabis government website received more than 700 public comments since the announcement of this executive order. Out of the 700 comments, only 10 10 comments were unsupportive. In July, there will be two forums held. One will be on July 6th in Pikeville, Kentucky, with the second one on July 19th in Frankfort, Kentucky. What are your thoughts on this uh, committee? My name is Schlin, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Oh, man. You know, this, this just is robot. definitely good. <laughs> Go ahead, Laura. No, I was just going to say, did she just robot out on YouTube? I, I, I was going to say, I don't understand why it's northeast, west, and central. Like, they forgot that I don't know. I, I don't understand how Kentucky doesn't understand <laughs> four directions. 
Sorry. Throwing some shade. <laughs> I, sorry. I, I just, love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just a little snarky today. Um, <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, Kentucky definitely does this. I mean, uh, marijuana Mitch did actually legalize uh, cannabis in the farm bill, even though he doesn't realize that he did it. Um, but however, to all of that, I think it could get cumbersome for this for this committee as they go through district by district um, and get public comment, because there definitely is a lot of prohibitionists that live and the Kentucky State Patrol is going to be one of the biggest, uh, biggest contenders in that space. Yeah. And to your point, Jason, I don't think they have any motivation to actually discuss, you know, legalizing cannabis, cannabis, because I think no, Mitch I, did I, I think, exactly I think they do. I think they, I, I think they do. Epic. There's a number of Kentuckians that I know that, de- that definitely want to have cannabis legalized there. I've had a number of sure, conversations sure. with different oh. Republican congressmen from Kentucky in regards to this, to this, to this topic. And so I think there is a definitely a positive push going in that direction. And let's just be optimistic in how it may turn out. Okay. I'll be optimistic for you. Let's keep it moving. On this day, a few short decades ago, a badass Bay Area canna mom with the voice of a speakeasy jazz angel was born. She later grew up to secure more titles than an East Bay chop shop. Co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, chair of the Bar Association, San Cannabis Law Section, and founder of San Fran, pro bono legal project, to name a few. Up next, the birthday queen herself is breaking us off for the Happy birthday, Laura DeCaro. What you got for us today? Happy oh, birthday! Uh, we time. love you I so love much. You. Oh, <laughs> Thank you, everybody. That is really uh, uh, East Bay Chop Shop. I love that one, actually. Thanks, everybody. So, my article today, I want to start by uh, shouting out actually, Happy Pride to everyone. Uh, my article is about rainbow washing. It's entitled How Insincere Branding Tarnishes Pride and Similar Celebrations in Communities by Andrew Ward for Benzinga. The article starts out discussing some of these things that we've covered here before, like the Juneteenth ice cream and other failures to lead on honest environmental improvements, BIPOC quality, and then rainbow washing. The, that is the practice of using LGBTQ plus imagery and themes for a profit without donating funds or additional support during June or any other time. You've seen it. When a brand changes its logo to the rainbow for the month, false depictions of minority-owned brands, cannabis brands claiming to be queer-owned without having LGBTQ leadership, um, and, and, and the like. Lex Corwin, who is the CEO and founder of Stone Road, is noted as commending the companies for wanting to support LGBTQ communities, but feels that they're incorrectly meeting the movement. He's a, it used to be where companies didn't give a shit about targeting black or queer people. But cannabis, like most other sectors of our economy, has stumbled in its allyship. Rene Gagnon, who's the founder of Thunderbird Biomedical Inc., now Emerald Health Therapeutics, and the first transgender female CEO of a publicly traded cannabis company, said brands really need to understand that allyship and donating to anti-LGBTQ legislation just doesn't mesh. It undermines any attempt at LGBTQ stuff they say, she's quoted as saying. Most sources that the author spoke with had difficulty gauging just how common rainbow washing has become in cannabis. Um, but the author did point to a 2022 reboot report stating that roughly one-third of Pride campaigns failed to actually donate to any queer causes at all. 
Kate Gray, who's the Office and Events Manager of DIP Services, said, Considering the shared prosecution of cannabis and the LGBTQIA plus communities spanning decades, you'd assume that the cannabis community would have had some empathy toward other mutually stifled communities. But this brings me to a good blog post actually by Megan for Grasslands. It reminded folks of that combined struggle, calling out the act of trying to capitalize on allyship with the queer community and other communities with varying degrees of authenticity and those who should not be forgotten in the LGBTQIA plus community. She points out that we might not have legal medical cannabis in a vast majority of the United States if it weren't for the work of the gay and lesbian activists over the last 50 years. She points to specific people, early pioneers, she calls them, who established care networks and made medical cannabis not only legal but accessible. And they're based out of San Francisco, one of the most prominent centers of queer culture in the country. And so looking forward to Pride Parade on Sunday, everyone. Sorry. Uh, she points to Dennis Perone, who I, most people on this call probably have heard of, if didn't know, who spent years selling cannabis underground in the Castro and connecting AIDS patients with medical cannabis. She calls out Mary Jane Rathburn, or AKA Brownie Mary, for her clandestine distribution of thousands of infused edibles to those living with HIV and AIDS. She calls out Los Angeles Black Gay Pride Association founder Paul Scott, who served as an early board member of the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club and founded the first medical cannabis dispensary in Inglewood. She calls out that stalwart couple of our Castro community, Michael Cohen and David Goldman, who are everywhere and have continued to serve as medical cannabis advocates through the Brownie Mary Democratic Club. And there are more in this article. I highly recommend that you just sort of, you know, pick up both of these articles, look up this blog post on Grasslands, because as more and more companies are embracing implicit or explicit queer branding, like like companies like Can, Sonar Rhythm, and Kush Queen, which are doing good things, the latter even making a Pride-branded CBD lube. Even more are actually just rainbow washing. And authentic PR narratives and strategic partnerships need to be be part of the dialogue at this point. We need to hold people accountable, um, and we need to force them to reconcile the the disparity between their messaging um, and their actual corporate practices. So my name is Laura DeCarlo, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Is it, Laura, I'm not yeah. sure. Can you please help me with this? Did, are, are, is this article uh, saying that 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 can is is rainbow washing? No, no, no. That was not what they were saying at all. Um, that no. Queer branding of companies like Can and Sonder Rhythm and Kush Queen are not rainbow washing. Now they are actually explicitly like branded queer um, and appropriately so. Yeah, they're queer. They're queer rooted. Like, un, like rainbow washing is a real fucking thing, and unfortunately, I think it's just a, a byproduct of capitalism. We saw what's going on uh, with with uh, Walmart and Juneteenth ice cream. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, like all this shit going on is is capitalism. That's really my fun. Shitty. It is. And, you know, but what's really, what's really disturbing and and part of the articles that maybe I didn't quite get across is really that, you know, there's, you know, they're flying the flag for one month a year and then they're contributing to anti-gay, anti-trans legislation that is just proliferating the United States right now. And so we really need to be looking at what they're actually doing and where their leadership is. Are they promoting people within? Are they, um, you know, governed at all by members of this community? Because if without all of these different perspectives, 
we're missing out on a, a significant perspective um, it, that, that can contribute to our, our betterment as a community and as business people and just as people in general. Couldn't have, couldn't have said that better. Thank you for covering that, Laura. What we got next, Jason? Who we got? Oh, yeah. Coming up next. Oh, yeah. He's a blunt-blowing, Fresno-based man of the people, representative of the black conservative voice whose existence Joe Biden would love to strip from your hood passes for even acknowledging. Here to change the narrative, it's none other than the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. Hey, hey, what's up in my state of cannabis clan? When it comes to the we, the people's right to consume cannabis for medical use, don't expect the Supreme Court to come to our defense. On Tuesday, SCOTUS declined to take up a pair of cases concerning workers' compensation for medical marijuana. This comes about a month after the Justice Department in court encouraged the high court to reject the cannabis cases, in part because it argued that broader marijuana policy choices were better left up to Congress or the executive branch. The new decision means that fewer than four justices felt the legal challenges merited consideration by the high court. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that a majority agrees with the lower court rulings in the disputes either. These particular cases could have had wide-ranging implications related to federal supremacy. Two Minnesota residents raised their separate challenges seeking workers' compensation for medical cannabis expenses after being hurt while working on the job. In both instances, The state Supreme Court ruled that federal law prohibiting marijuana preempted state law, meaning the employers were not obligated to pay for the medicine. But the plaintiffs and advocacy groups like Empire State Normal made the case because employers aren't required to possess, manufacture, or distribute cannabis in contravention of federal law. Simply providing workers' compensation for marijuana is not preempted by the Controlled Substances Act. After the cases were appealed to the Supreme Court, the justices notably sought input from the top DOJ lawyer. The Solicitor General's office filed an amicus curiae response last month, an optional move, recommending that the court not take up the matter. The filing acknowledged that several other state courts have weighed in on the issue with differing opinions, but it said that none of these cases have meaningful considered con- have meaningfully considered all of the possible grounds for preemption. So no further review is warranted at this time. Plaintiffs then filed additional briefs laying out why they disagreed with the DOJ and felt the cases deserved the attention of the nation's highest court. Not enough justices, however, agreed, and so the cases are now dead. In other marijuana disputes that could one day reach the Supreme Court, several leading marijuana businesses and stakeholders are banding together to prepare to sue the federal government over what they believe to be unconstitutional policies impeding their operations, according to the CEO of one of the companies, and they've reportedly retained a prominent law firm led by an attorney who has been involved in numerous high-profile federal cases. But the high court's denial of the current workers' compensation cases raises questions about whether enough justices have an appetite to confront the overreaching federal-state cannabis conflict at this point. The Justice Department is also set to soon respond in a case brought by Florida top agriculture official 
and Democratic gubernatorial candidate that concerns medical cannabis patients' rights to purchase and own firearms. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor. Speak now or forever hold your peace. So now to my understanding, the Supreme Court is the one that overturned the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. So how, why did they get involved then and they're not getting involved now? Is it the composition of the court that's the issue? Well, I mean, this this shouldn't even go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court would rule against the cannabis industry because it's a federally illegal substance. And so I'm glad that the Supreme Court did not take up this issue. It should have been left to the states and where they left it until we have federal legalization, at which point the Supreme Court could retake up this issue. Let's keep smoking the news so that we can get Brandon's story in. Let's do it. This Long Beach-based lover of weed, IP law, and beard excellence is the CEO of Fruit Slabs and Cannabis IP attorney. You got it with the beard. Bringing us home, Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me. My headline comes from Marijuana Moment. It's Congress tackles hemp industry challenges, CBD marketing, marijuana research, and psychedelics psychedelics and spending legislation. The House Appropriations Committee released new legislation and documents, which include a push to coordinate better guidance for hemp manufacturing, CBD marketing, cannabis research, and alternative treatments for PTSD. The text is part of the fiscal year 2023 spending bills and includes reports for the FDA, the VA, agriculture, and other agencies. The report for the U.S. Department of Agriculture discusses working with the DEA to address hot hemp and how to approach businesses that may engage in practices that temporarily raise the THC concentration in excess of federally permissible levels. The committee opined that Congress, quote, intentionally expanded the definition of hemp to ensure that materials and process would not be criminalized, and the report seeks additional interagency coordination to develop more clear guidelines to address inconsistencies in regulation of production by the USDA and DEA. The committee also expressed concern about supplements and foods that are marketed in violation of federal law because they contain derivatives of cannabis, including CBD-infused products. The committee expressed concern that non-compliant cannabis product could contain dangerous contaminants, but the report did not acknowledge that there is virtually no compliant way to have CBD in a supplement or food product. The report basically ignores the structural hurdle and says the committee, quote, recognizes FDA's efforts undertaken thus far, including research, requests for data, consumer education, issuance of guidance and policy around cannabis-based drug product development, and some enforcement against wrongdoers, end quote. The article noted the FDA has gone as far as issuing warning letters to companies that have misleading marketing tactics, particularly ones that leverage the perception that CBD could reduce the risk of contracting COVID. The report also included a section encouraging the USDA to promote genomics and bioinformation research into hemp to attempt to identify genetic traits that influence quality and production. And the spending bill also included language that prevents federal funds from being appropriated to interfere in lawful hemp programs. Missing from the spending bill are some relevant provisions that did not survive from last year, one that extended the 2014 Farm Bill Hemp Pilot Program, another that had requested the USDA study and issue recommendations on barriers to minority participation in the hemp industry. The spending bill also encouraged more research into cannabis and the veteran community and emphasized the need to support and enhance research into novel methods to treat PTSD, including looking at cannabis and psychedelics like psilocybin and MDMA. The base spending bill did not include provisions to protect all states with state legal cannabis programs or tribal adult use marijuana programs, but did maintain the rider preventing the Justice Department from using its funds to intervene in state legal medical cannabis programs. Adult use cannabis programs are still exposed. The USDA, FDA, and VA funding bills are set to be marked up by the House Appropriations Committee today, and after that, it will head to the House floor. 
This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Thank you so much, Brandon. Yeah, you you got it right on there. That was the top of the hour now. It was a really great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Zsa Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being in... in an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. Twenty-seven and eleven, Rico. <laughs> so safe banking. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it. Today, with the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.